once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows. Uh, one of the shows that we have up both on air and online, as the term is currently used these days, uh, on our website at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. By on air and online, I really mean pretty much online. Uh, We're not on air. We are not a broadcast uh, piece. We are basically found on the Internet. And when you go to that website, www.centerlefttalkradio.com, The first thing you'll be presented with, besides a a rather nice graphic of of the microphone into which I'm speaking right now, uh, is... A, uh, is a is a pair of of uh, of links. They're in blue, and and you can't miss them. And the first one takes you to a listing of all of our most recent. Well, I guess as many as however many are up there. Every show that we do, we put up as a podcast. So there might be as many as thirty or forty or more up there. Whatever whatever our podcast service allows us to keep up there in in a uh, in a rotating or actually in a in a in a, uh, what's the term? Uh, the, the, you keep knocking off the oldest as you go. Forgive me for not being a bit more glib on that one. Uh, and the second link is our radio loop, which is to say the link that you would hit if you want to pick up the show wherever it happens to be running in the loop that it's playing in off of a separate computer we have here in the studio and going out via our modem uh, in a constant live stream and just pick the show up. Uh, You can also, of course, find Center Left Radio wherever, wherever you happen to get your podcasts from Dangling Participle and you'd find it, therefore, uh, or then, uh, as Center Left Radio. But uh, I think for most of you, uh, many of you at least, you're coming and listening via our, uh, our link, our, our website, and that's www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. Uh, it, it remains difficult not to at least focus on the events in Ukraine and Russia, <clears throat> And, and, and uh, I, I suppose most of what you're all, what we're all hearing, in the in the uh, in the news coverage, however you're picking up that news, uh, is a is a recitation of the problematic parts of it, uh, the the horrors, I guess, from in, in most sources. <clears throat> And I think this would be true of both Republican and Democratic, if I can, if I can actually say it that way, sources, uh, facts, <laughs> fact creation uh, mechanisms. <clears throat> Everybody is getting more or less the same story, that the, the Russians are behaving atrociously, doing horrible things. Uh, there are civilian massacres taking place. And, and, and the president of the United States, Joe Biden, yesterday flat out just said, uh, Putin's a war criminal and must be brought to trial, must be brought to justice. The people responsible for this must pay for their crimes. Uh, y- you don't get much, you don't get much more specific than that. And we are getting graphic evidence of exactly what the Russians are doing. In the midst of this, and, and, and perhaps this is, this is the moment when this sort of a discussion should most appropriately take place, there has been an online discussion among a whole bunch of the people that I went to high school with that are still and we're all still in regular contact uh, from Regis High School. And again, with, without naming names, uh, I, on this one, absolutely not. I'll, 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 I'll let people, when, they're, when there are members of a Noble Hearts Forum panel, uh, 
that show up here on Center Left Radio. You can get the names. You can get the opinions. They're coming out of their mouths. They can say it. It's how things are being done. I, I choose not to, for obvious reasons, <clears throat> uh, reveal uh, the names of people in a internet, uh, in a, you know, in a, in, on, a, on an email thread uh, that basically is not intended for any more public distribution than it's receiving among the people who are part of that. But uh, having set this up in that way, there is, as I speak, a thread that is running internationally <clears throat> among these guys, our guys, uh, involving the place of non violent resistance. Remember that? Non-violent resistance, uh, a la Mahatma Gandhi, a la Martin Luther King Jr. This has suddenly uh, become a major topic. It was introduced by one person in particular, but I was really, really surprised by the number of people who have joined the thread commented on it, uh, and, and, and I've been getting, I've been equally surprised by the range of opinions uh, involving uh, nonviolent resistance with respect to, with relationship to the events, the very current events taking place uh, in Ukraine as Russia continues to uh, do some pretty horrible things there. Uh, basically destroy Mariupol, as it would seem, uh, leaving civilians dead in the street, massacring people uh, as the army pulls away, doing all sorts of just awful things, uh, launching missiles in where uh, direct combat among uh, Ukrainian and Russian troops did not produce the results that the Russians would have hoped for. And most probably basically resorting to the the typical uh, invader strategy at this point, medieval in its form, of just because we're bigger and have more resources, we're now just going to wear you down until we wear you out. That seems obviously to be the Russian strategy at this point. It's a pretty ugly, horrible way of doing things. In the context of all that, the question is arising. What is, what should be, what could be the role of non-violent resistance at this point in time? And, and I, I must admit, as I first started reading this, as I, as I first, as, as the words just came into my ears, there was this dissonant sense, a real dissonance. Wait, 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 what, what? Russia is out there bashing the hell out of these people, and you people are, you're talking non-violent resistance. Well, I, I wasn't the first one to, to, to react that way, but, but hopefully, nor was I the first one to after having that reaction, well, apparently I was not the only one, to then sit back and really consider what nonviolent resistance was and is and should be and what its role is in this and other situations. I, I, think, I think most of us of a certain age were raised with the notion that nonviolent resistance uh, and, and in two, really, really, it's place in two major civil rights episodes in the lifetime of, of some of us of a certain age. The first, obviously, being the earliest days of the civil rights movement in America, and the second being uh, the middle and waning days of the, uh, of the South African uh, apartheid regime. And watching how nonviolent re non resistance in both of those instances 
And, and Desmond Tutu said this often in, in, so many of his, in so many of his speeches. Uh, he just passed away recently, the former uh, Archbishop of, uh, of South Africa. I believe he, well, whatever his title was, within the Episcopal Church. Um, that nonviolence, and, and, and Martin Luther King and, and all of his followers, followers nonviolence was ultimately the path to, that got us at least to the 1965 Voting Rights Act and was the path that we needed to continue on um, until Martin Luther King was violently assassinated. Uh, but yet, I don't, and, and, and Mahatma Gandhi, basically, his, his whole approach to nonviolence as the vehicle for getting the British the hell out of India. And by God, that seems to have worked. I mean, combined with other factors, but then again, nonviolent resistance is designed to work in concert with other factors. It, it's, it's in, in reading some of the things that I've read in these threads the last day or so, the, the history of nonviolent resistance basically is such that in refusing to cooperate with the oppressor in refusing to accept the things that the oppressor wants the oppressed to do in order to validate the oppressor's uh, position of dominance, the, the strategy is that the oppressor will find himself, itself, the country, the group, the, whatever it is that is doing the oppressing, will be put in a position where it becomes an unsustainable oppression because the, the oppressed, the, the concept goes, need to cooperate with the oppressor in perpetuating the oppression. And, and example after example are given that basically suggest how this works. And, and it, there were numerous, numerous examples of how this worked in India. Uh, that basically the the the, the salt uh, the salt strike uh, the the refusal to purchase goods from the British the need to go and create uh, your own clothing your own to 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 go and dry out our own salt now that was a direct violation of British law but it was a non-violent violation. All of these things ultimately combine to make the oppression or the occupation or whatever is going on a more and more difficult situation for the oppressor or occupier. Perhaps, reasonably, there is a moral issue that is further brought out and that over time more and more people begin to understand the moral uh, unsustainability of the oppression or occupation, especially because the people who are oppressed or occupied are letting you are are are, are responding in such a distinctly different way than the oppressors are. That you the the occupied or oppressed are functioning at a much higher moral eth and ethical uh, level than the garish occupy the the inappropriate illegal garish occupiers are operating that that in itself that dynamic is largely what ultimately creates the dissonance for the occupier or oppressor and puts them in a position where sooner or later up world opinion local opinion however however this thing materializes makes it impossible for the occupier oppressor to sustain occupation and oppression and they they choose themselves to get the hell out of the business of doing it it's 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 a it's a elegant, beautiful statement. It resonates with biblical uh, writings. It resonates with the with the story of Jesus. It's it's you know it's it's turn the other cheek. It's it's blessed are the peacemakers. It's all of these things. But does it work within, or or can can we? 
oh, let me, let me try it this way. Let's try it this way. I'm going to ask you this. Can you imagine nonviolent resistance on the part of Ukrainians to the actions of the Russians at this point? Simple yes or no. Well, I, I, and again, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I can't hear you responding to me. But it's hard. It's a hard one. It's, uh, on the one hand, it, it's, I, I just, as a matter of principle, that's what it, really what it comes down to, as a matter of principle. Nonviolent resistance is the right and, and good and appropriate and proper way, the best possible way, to approach oppression and, and subjugation. Dominance by someone that should not be dominating and oppressing and subjugating. It, it avoids, there are studies that I've been reading that, that says that, that history shows again and again that it avoids more bloodshed than it creates. But it requires something that I'm not hearing from the people who, uh, who are promoting it within the group that I'm reading from right now. In the case of the British, in the case of the, of the Boers in South Africa, in the case of the authorities in America, there were prescribed parameters of behavior. There was just so far that the oppressor, as it were, in, this, in, in these different cases, could go because they were all in some way part of an established order. Okay, so in the case of the, the British in India, in the case of the Boers in South Africa, in the case of the police and, and other legitimate authorities in the South in the United States, not just the South, they were part of an established order that was stitched in to the entire process that was creating the oppression. They were not just an invading group. They were not the Huns. They weren't the equivalent of that. What you have in the current situation with Russia and Ukraine the, the Russians were, were talking up a situation initially, pre-invasion, where they were coming to embrace their Ukrainian brothers who were really part of a greater Russia, and they would be received with, with open arms, and we would reunite this historic entity, and you got these visions of, of a greater mother Russia once again, all of this stuff. And, 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 the, and the, you got the very real sense, and American intelligence seems to suggest that Mr. Putin had the sense, somehow, that he would be welcomed with open arms, that, that going into Ukraine would be a simple matter, that a different government would be installed, a Russia-friendly or a Russian-controlled government would be installed, or perhaps uh, Ukraine would flat out become a suburb of, uh, of Russia. The entire country would just be taken over. And, and that would be that. And uh, next step, uh, who knows? Uh, the, the, the Baltic states maybe yet next. Uh, Estonia might start uh, you know, quaking. Uh, Tallinn might uh, start expecting to see Russian uh, troops uh, coming across the straits over there. Uh, you know, and, and who knows how fast uh, uh, Helsinki might begin seeing th whatever, whatever might have happened. But in Putin's mind, it was supposed to go a very different way. It didn't. It's turned into a bloody invasion. People fought back initially. There was no embrace of Russian troops, nor was there a non-violent resistance on day one. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of belief that the Russians would actually do this. I don't know if you recall, there was a, I, I remember I, there was this amazing story. Within two days of the actual invasion, a group of mothers were bringing their daughters from all over uh, Ukraine to some city in the east, right near the Russian border, or maybe it was closer to the Belarusian border, a little further north, but there was a dance competition. 
And, 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 and it would have been an area where the Russians would have, would have definitely come right in, and they did come right in to this area, but there was no belief, no one actually imagined that the Russians would actually, actually do this. They, this, this is not your standard, they certainly were not pre-knitted into the structure of Ukraine. For whatever Putin might have been saying about uh, the belief that, that, that somewhere in the south and in Donbras and in, and, in, uh, and, 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 and in the Mariupol area or maybe around Crimea or in, in this, the, the Russian speakers would embrace the entry and it, it, that, that embrace would, would, would basically just sort of spill over into the rest of the Ukrainian populace. No. And there was no, it, it, everybody knew that that made no sense. And so no one was really prepared. No one really, really, really believed, except American intelligence made this known a, a bit later in the game, that this was going to happen. But, but there's certainly, the point being that there was certainly no integration, no, no substantive integration of Russia in larger Ukraine, regardless of what Putin may have uh, fantasized or attempt to promote or lied about, because the Russians, as we know, lie very, very well. Everybody, a lot of people lie, but the Russians seem to be particularly good. The Russian, the, the, the Russian military and the, and the Russian intelligence services are particularly good at lying. Unfortunate, but, but true. So, again, back to the question. Can you imagine... Could you have imagined back then, under a best-case scenario, could you have imagined that as Russian troops start coming in and start shooting up uh, military bases and everything else, could you imagine that a moment where a decision is made at both the governmental and on a personal level, that, or, or, or maybe, maybe it was a pre-event decision, that if these Russians actually do this, and again, no one believed this, so there really wasn't time to do this. If the Russians actually do this, we will, what? We will meet them with nonviolent resistance. What would that have meant? It would have meant allow them to come in and occupy in, in all probability, if, it's, if, if the thought is presented on a national level, in other words, if President Zelensky had, had bought into the notion of nonviolent resistance, then he would have said, our troops will not fight you. We will not basically allow bloodshed. You will, if you wish, if you're going to come in with troops. Okay, here's the keys to the government. Take over now try to govern us. That would have been the, the, the formulaic uh, way in which a non-violent resistance might have worked. And even as I say it, there's a, there's a certain, there's, there's it, saying or thinking about and speaking of non-violent resistance has an eloquence and an elegance to it. The notion that if you, we know you're that big, we know you're that massive. We expect you to basically be using your force and your mass. We will resist with, because we don't have the militaristic mass, we will otherwise resist. And our otherwise consists of what will effectively be passive non-cooperation. But you see, all of that ignores the entire Eastern European and European connection with all of this. It ignores the history of Russian activity. It ignores the NATO components. It ignores the fact that Estonia is right there next door to this entire thing. It ignores the fact that neutral Finland sharing a border with Russia is watching this happen. It ignores the nature of World War II. It ignores the history of Russian aggression. It asks that we 
take an idealize or an I, no, no, not idealize, because it's been done, an ideal approach to, a, to an aggressor because both morally and statistically, when it's begun, when, when reaction to an aggressor, an aggressor or an oppressor that at least is rational in their initial approach, when that is done that way, the, the possibility of bloodshed and death is reduced. The statistics say that. But could that even be reasonably considered given the larger framework within which Ukraine exists? And the fact that we might or might not be able to do so because of NATO's concern, Europe's concern, is that a statement of moral failure on the part of Ukraine and Europe for not considering, for not thinking in terms of a, a non-violent response to what Russia did. This, this, this may sound, I don't know, does this sound kind of, oh, come on, what's he, what's he prattling on about over here? But, I, but please don't take it in that way. I'm not looking, I'm not looking for something to just prattle about and waste, waste your time with. This, this is very real stuff, and the whole notion of nonviolence and the whole nonviolent movement is always, it always has to consider, it always finds itself in extremely difficult situations. There's, there's no clean, simple scenario in which nonviolent behavior, nonviolent reaction can be brought to play. It's always, always messy. It's always emotional. It's always challenging. That's part of the thing and it requires it requires very brave thoughtful reasonable leaders to to basically react in a way that recognizes that nonviolent resistance ultimately is that process that mechanism which shows the greatest respect for human life but, but as I say, in, in this instance, it requires a rational, a rational oppressor, a rational invader. You, you, can't, you can't basically say, well, we'll make it easier. It'll be easier on us in the long run if we just let these people run rampant. Okay, we, we, we missed the first, obviously, Ukraine missed the first window of opportunity to function this way. I mean, we're, we're how far into this thing now? How many, how many days, how many weeks? It, it's, we're well past the period where there could have been organized nonviolent resistance as a result of the encouragement of President Zelensky and the cooperation of the people and the armed forces basically laying down their arms or at least refusing to use them, they would have obviously been confiscated by the Russians immediately. But here we are now, X weeks into this process. Is there a place for nonviolent resistance to be utilized now? Can we imagine the development of a nonviolent resistance at this quite literally late stage in the game in a post-atrocity period? Is, is, and, and, and a post-atrocity period with a, uh, with a atrocity uh, doler outer who now basically is in semi-retreat in certain areas, but, but Americans are warning that basically, with their intelligence basically warning that that retreat is little more than an opportunity to rearm and re-establish, uh, re-supply re, re forces, reposition, uh, start the whole process again in different parts of the country. What, is there a moment here that we can, can we consider this? 
even uh, is it worth even talking about nonviolent resistance on the part of the Russians, and and this large uh, on the part of the Ukrainians, and this largely is what this string, what this discussion is. It's 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 the conflict between the moral. Uh, force the moral strength of the non-violent reaction running headlong into the reality of a violent oppressor who increasingly is using worse and worse tactics against civilian populations. Now, one point that was made in the thread was that where are the stories that about what could be done? All that we're hearing in the news are the, are, the, are the horror stories and everything else. And essentially, how is that ever going to allow people to think in terms of a non-violent resistance? All we're hearing is the worst of what has been done by the Russians, and therefore the natural reaction to this is horror, disgust, and a desire for revenge, nonviolence doesn't have much of a shot under those circumstances, obviously. But what other stories are there to tell? I would suggest, and I'm just suggesting this, and I'm not sure if what I'm about to tell you would even fit within the larger definition of nonviolence. But I would suggest that the world community, certainly NATO, and the United States with it, are functioning in a kind of self-imposed, non-violent way. No, 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 the answer will come back. Are you kidding? They're supplying arms to the Russian armed forces. Local groups within the United States are sending small arms to individual Ukrainian people. How can you even use the words non-violent in saying that? And NATO was only staying out of it on a military basis because they know that it would lead most probably to the, well, if not a world war, because the Russians have, have proven to the world and to themselves that they are a, they ha, they a third-rate military uh, ground force, leaving them with chemical and, uh, and nuclear weapons. That's basically what they would be left to work with. They don't have much of a military. Uh, there have been all sorts of stories about the, the corruption over the past several years and all the corruption within the Putin's inner circle and how all these oligarchs have made all this money and Putin's become allegedly one of the wealthiest billionaires on the planet just basically sucking off of the whatever industrial forces there are in uh, in Russia and taking his cut that's the deal it sounds like you know something that Donald would have loved to have been able to do if they gave him a chance but uh, so far so good on that um, can we think of the restraint of NATO in anything like, as anything like a non-violent form of resistance? Can, can the restraint uh, not to function in a militaristic way, not to just give way to destroying uh, Russian troops, and just launching in missiles and bringing in aircraft and just blowing them up on the ground. I mean, just, just decimating these people. And which we, I, I gather we could easily, easily do at this point if we wanted to. We could do it via NATO. We could do it ourselves. Is this in any, does this fall anywhere near a nonviolent response? Well, it's not violent. It involves arming people. Is this a reasonable middle ground? Is, is, would nonviolence, where it's, it's just no longer a practical possibility, would the restraint being shown by the United States and NATO, even if it's a self-interested restraint, is this a moral lesson in nonviolence, or is it just a prelude to something worse? 
What, what is, how, how do you define what it is that the United States and NATO is not doing right now? Is there a moral positive in the restraint being shown now? Or is it just, well, you have no choice but to restrain yourself? Is there a moral positive in the information being given out by the American government in particular, which demonstrates the lies of the Russians, demonstrates or lets them know and lets the world know in advance what Russia is doing, has turned them this has, has made the Russian activity uh, so, uh, so, so reprehensible to most. Of course, in, even in this country, I keep hearing, if only they had, uh, if only they had implemented the Minsk Accords, uh, Moscow would never have had to, would never have decided to do this, and certainly it would have been a lot. Please, please. The Minsk Accords have been so, so eviscerated, and, and what Moscow is doing is so beyond anything that might have been required of the Minsk Accords, and, or it, it, the, an effort to place the Minsk Accords in functional play at, at this time. It, it, you, you get this. You, you get what, what are frequently referred to these days as useful idiots in this country who are willing, and anywhere in the world, useful idiots that Moscow can use and, and throw a storyline and find a way to link their storyline to some other grievance that useful idiots are willing to repeat and, and share among themselves. It, some can, maybe some conspiracy theory. <coughs> maybe if you start getting and talking about you know, your, your QAnon types, there's, there's something that Moscow, that they can basically feed, that basically will get these people to repeat the Moscow position because it just, it just falls in line with either an I'm anti everything else about the libs and the dems and we hate Biden and everything else or, or we're out to get Hunter or something. That's always going to be out there. How about the sanctions themselves? Is there a nonviolent moral appropriateness about that? Is, is there a subcategory of nonviolence <clears throat> that includes the use of sanctions as a mechanism of getting things that we want to get done? Does, moral, does, does, does a discussion of nonviolence, must it begin and end around the notions of what must be done by an oppressed people by the objects of someone else's inappropriate action. Can outside forces bringing other form, non-violent forms of, of, of pressure to bear, are they purveyors and supporters of non-violence? And, and again, it, it may not matter to a whole lot of people whether that's the case, but, but I just feel today and, and looking at what I've been watching going by, the very notion of nonviolence. And again, it, it's, it's the type of thing that only comes up when it's least convenient. Nonviolence is not something you bring up when it's just, it's a nice, it's a lovely day, and we're having a great time, and let's go for a picnic. Oh, and let's just, you know, after we've, before we have dessert, let's have a little nonviolent resistance to, to something. I don't know. No, it, it, you only hear about it. It's only out there when there is a really rough situation. And it's come up. And, and this is why I present it to you. I don't have any answers here. I have, I have a reaction. And because I know I'm reacting, I'm, I'm, I'm prone to stop and pull back and think about what my reaction consists of. That I'm just not, I'm not basically being led by the nose by the news stories. I'm not just having an emotional response. But assuming most of what I'm getting in and most of what I'm getting in essentially is the ugliness of what Russians are doing. And since we 
have not begun with a nonviolent response. Is there room for a nonviolent response now with and among the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people and clearly the Ukrainian military? Does nonviolence in any form, the nonviolent reaction of the oppressed of the, of, the, of, the, of the object of the oppressor. Is it either possible, is it A, is it possible? B, would it be functional? Is it, and I could go a, a third step here, is it morally mandated, no matter what? Is it, is it an absolute? Is, is the effort to go into a, a nonviolent mode always, always the moral absolute that any oppressed group must consider and face? Is it, is it the best way? Is it, is, it the, is it what a religious group would automatically go for? Is, it, is, it the, is, it, is, is there some kind of absolute morality about it which demands that it must be considered at all times? I, I, I don't have an easy answer to that. I am reacting, and I'm thinking now as well as reacting. I just don't understand how nonviolence would play into the current situation, how it would be a... a, a a skillful means, to use the Buddhist term, a skillful means of achieving an end. You know, you don't have to, in Buddhism, you know, lying back and meditating in, uh, in the face of any, any obstacle is not what you necessarily have to do. You don't respond to all aggression by simply lying back and meditating. No, you can use skillful means to achieve appropriate ends morally justifiable ends ultimately. I don't have answers to all of this. I, I know that we're going to watch this play out. I know that in a even slightly more perfect world, it would have been nice to see nonviolence uh, utilized I don't know if, if it may seem more reasonable to do so in the future. If, a, if, if this thing does continue for a great period of time, if we get to the point where the, where the Russians have worn down the Ukrainians to the point where there's just not much fight left, I don't know if nonviolence will happen. I don't know what will happen in, within the Russian economic sphere if things get so bad that Putin basically is under some kind of internal pressure for allowing the middle class of Russia basically to get ground down to their own level of feeling oppressed. I don't know what any of this is going to do. I don't know if I'm being, must we, is it a morally appropriate thing? Must we, must we take a position on this? Are people of conscience being called on at this point to consider, to consider at least a possible path of nonviolent resistance? I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for Yes, we okay, make it easy. Yes, we should all consider it. And then what? What do we do about it? How do we do do we wave a finger at the Ukrainians and say, "Why aren't you considering nonviolent resistance?" Or do we have a internal theolo uh, theoretical arguments uh, as to why it didn't happen and 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 uh, and remind ourselves of how wonderful nonviolent resistance is but but we just sort of avoid dealing with the current circumstances because well you know we really don't want to get too far into the uh, into the weeds on this one because it really gets messy does this call into question the entire notion of nonviolent resistance does it force us to reconsider what 
what is part and parcel of a nonviolent strategy? Is there a partial nonviolent strategy at play right now among NATO? Is our third parties who are endangered by the actions of the aggressor morally permitted to react? In, within, the, within the area of nonviolence. I, I, I'd love to be able to have that conversation. I hopefully I will with, with some of the key players in, in this screen, in, in, the th in the thread that's been going on. What about third party players, third parties who would be affected by this? What, what rights do they have? What, what moral directives should they be operating from? What, what imperatives? Are they, are they compelled to act or, non, or not act if they are adhering to the notions of nonviolent intervention? I don't know that there's uh, any possibility that the United States or any other Western European country, I mean, we could point to their history, we could all point to history and say, you see, you've been terrible, you've been terrible, you've been terrible, and, and therefore, shut up. No, because that that just makes us avoid taking responsibility for the present. We have to deal with where we are. Arjun had to deal with the battle facing him in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna talks to him about difficult situations. It's all connected. And everything that we do here with Ukraine, it's all connected. It will all, we'll be able at some point to look back in history. And it's, it's happened in the future already. We just don't see it. Time is, time is, is this fluid uh, mathematical construct that runs in multiple directions. And events that we are, the events that we are putting into play right now have already been, have already reached a conclusion at some point in the future. And that future now is just being played out in the present. And I know that I'm getting into, into theoretical, physical concepts that might, that might only muddy the waters a little bit more from where we are at the moment. But I just think we have to at least think about these things at least just a little bit. And in an odd way, just the notion of nonviolent resistance, of just saying those words, of imagining those words in the context of where we are right now, it's an elevating thought. It's not I don't, I don't see it or I don't imagine it as, a, as an automatic uh, uh, statement of weakness that we are acquiescing to uh, our, our incapacity by, by saying, even suggesting the notions of nonviolent resistance. Quite the contrary. I think it's, it's taking the toughest possible road and placing it in front of us and saying, what would it have taken to go that route, a route that was proven meaningful and viable and morally and ethically embraced based on the actions of a Gandhi or, or, a, or Martin Luther King or a, or a Desmond Tutu. We need to think about all these things. We can't just let this go by and reduce ourselves to the, to the functional mindset of the oppressors. And I can't imagine a, a greater uh, differentiation from the functional mindset of, of, these, of, of these Russian, forgive me, beasts, than to think in terms of how one avoids conflict via nonviolent resistance. Now maybe may not be the time when, it, when the principles come into play, but now is the time we must think about, at a minimum, consider nonviolence. Hard, hard thing to do, but we have to do it because we're just better than these people who are absolutely fear-driven and, and, yeah, 
we, we, we have to rise above the fear of the Russians and just allow the, the elegance of nonviolent resistance, as, 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 as difficult and impossible as it may seem to, to recognize it at this moment in history, but allow it into our minds, at least as a, as a possibility. And who knows? Who knows how the circumstances may change? Who knows if positive thoughts, if, if affecting the energy of the universe through a common thought of nonviolent resistance, of imagining the beauty of nonviolent resistance, of suppressing the fear that we are all feeling about and from the Russian invasion, the, the impotence, the feeling of, of just, we can't do, ah, just suppressing, if you suppress that fear, what would you put in its place? What would you imagine putting in its place? If you want to take religious imagery, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus also, you know, drove moneylenders out of the temple and the Bible, depending on what, what phrases you want to read, if you want to use the Bible as the authority on this. Uh, one day God is destroying everything. The next day he's, he's a nice guy and he's, you know, smiling and helping everybody and stuff like that. You know, God is bipolar. Religious texts are bipolar. You can find whatever you want and justify whatever you want using religious texts because they're all institutionally oriented. It's that simple. What is the higher ground here? Do we just point to our democratic principles and push buttons that send weapons? Or is there something more, something higher than that? that we're all ultimately aiming for. Beyond this moment in time, beyond, beyond this year, beyond this decade, where are we going as a planet? Where might we, in this very difficult moment, imagine ourselves to be? What, what might we imagine ourselves evolving into? Oh, this isn't the time to think of that. By God, it is the time to think of that. The most difficult times. We have to, because beyond Russia, we are in a very, very precarious state within our own democracy. We have to think about higher orders of things and where things can go. Russia, Russia for, in many ways for America is, and, and Ukraine is, is a distraction from ourselves. Got to keep the whole picture out there. It's not an easy time to be, but it's a invigorating time. Potentially, it will be an enlightening time with a chance to suppress our fears and elevate hope in love through means that will, will expose themselves. When, when you suppress fear and you elevate your hope, you don't know exactly what the mechanism of hope will be. You don't know what the vehicle is that's going to present itself. This is part of hope. Hope is also hope. I, I hope some, I, I, I put my hope in the, in, in the possibility of positive evolution, that something better will come of this, that once I, once I suppress my fears, a better way will present itself. That's, that's really it. Not just here, in every possible way. In everything about America right now, and all these challenges to our democracy, hope. It only shows up when we get rid of fear. And boy, we got fear aplenty. Just some stuff to think of and think about on an early spring morning. With a little jazz.
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can. On a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make center-left radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident. And as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, thank you. You've been listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. Is there a place for nonviolent resistance among the people, the government, the troops of Ukraine at this incredible moment in history? Uh, to the credit of my uh, of my classmates, my high school classmates. This has become a major hot topic on the internet of late, and I think it's one that we need to at least think about. <laughs>